I want you to imagine you're with your three-year-old child and you're trying to fly, fly a kite at the beach. And kites these days, they don't just have one tail. They've got like eight tails now. And so just one wrong move and you're going to have a, a tangled mess on your hands. And as you turn the kite over to your child, almost instantly they crash it and the kite string is morphed into a, a tangled rat's nest. It's hopelessly tangled and can't fly. And for your toddler, this is quite the trial. They're sad. They're disappointed. Yet they're also determined to, to fix things. So they start picking and pulling at the tangled mess. But as you watch, you know they just don't have the motor skills, the dexterity, the patience to, to get this done. They need your help. It's, it's beyond their ability. So as you sit there watching them try and do their best, what would you do? As a loving parent, you might want to immediately intervene and solve their problem for them. You want them to have a, a fun day at the beach, and you know they, they can't do this on their own. So you just need to step in, take over, and, and untangle this for them. But that might be a wasted opportunity for this little trial your child is facing is like a test. In this case, it is truly beyond their ability. They can't get themselves out of this mess But in such a situation, you want them to learn to come to you for help. Yes, we want to foster in our kids an appropriate level of dependence on us. You can just imagine the the strong and self-willed child saying in pride, like, no, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to do this myself. I don't need your help. And we want our children to to gain independence as they get older, but that level of stubborn self-will is only going to get them into trouble down the road. It's important for them to learn that there are times when we all need to humble ourselves and ask for help. So you might not want to immediately intervene and instantly solve all your kids' problems. Perhaps you should just wait for them to humbly come to you. Perhaps you should just let them struggle with the tangled mess for a little bit until they learn to come to you for help. Now, as parents, I think, I think we understand this, but now ask yourself, do you think God does that with us sometimes? Do you think he might ordain and leave some trials in our lap intending to humble us so that we might learn to depend on our heavenly father? Surely there are many trials in this life that we are not strong enough to face on our own. We often get ourselves into our own little tangled mess. And from our perspective, with our limited skills and knowledge and ability, we can't get ourselves out. We try, just make things worse. There's just no way to untangle this mess. And I bet you've felt that way in the past. With some trial in your life, you can't see a way out of this this tangled mess. You can't do it on your own. But you know, God sees your troubles. And to him, it's it's not that big of a problem. To God, it's easy to untangle. He has the power to completely unravel and redeem and fix all your life's troubles. He can make them all go away. and, And sometimes, by his grace, he does that. But... Is that always what we need? Is that always the best thing for us, his children, who sometimes need to learn a thing or two? Or instead, could you imagine sometimes God maybe just sitting back and waiting because he wants us to learn an important lesson that, that often can't be learned any other way that, that we need him. We 
desperately need him. We depend on him and we need to go to him for help. I think scripture would most definitely support this notion. Now, as we get older, it becomes no longer appropriate for us to depend on our parents for everything. But really, the opposite is is true with God. It doesn't matter how old you are. Even if you're 98 years old, we're still called to depend on him for, for everything. To breathe every breath and live every day in dependence on our Heavenly Father. He's your creator, your sustainer. And our dependence on him is to his glory. He's delighted when we rely on him for his care, his provision, his goodness, his mercy. And so are you doing that? Are you truly relying on your heavenly father? Or maybe you're more like that stubborn, self-willed child. And and you say to God, well, I don't don't really need you. I'm going to do this my own way and I'll be fine my own way. And if so, would it, would it be so hard to accept that, that God might just leave a trial in your lap, intending to humble you and to cause you to turn to him? Have you learned this lesson yet? And I can ask it in another way. Just think of your latest trial, whatever you, maybe you just went through. And I'll ask, how much did you pray? How fervently did you pray? How sincerely did you pray? You see, prayer is the chief litmus test of a person living in daily dependence on their heavenly father. It's the primary expression of a person who really believes that apart from God and his grace and his strength, I can't do this. I can do nothing apart from his power. So they pray. But if you find yourself not praying as you should, effectively persisting in your self-reliance and and self-will, well, it's probably about time you learn this lesson. And I would rather you learn this lesson the easy way from Scripture than the hard way from trials. At the very least, this morning, we're going to go with the easy way. And so you can open your Bibles now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Go there. We finally just started getting into James. It's a popular book of the Bible, a unique book. James is mostly practical in nature, and he stresses the need for your faith lived out. It's not enough for you to to sign a doctrinal statement. You have to actually live out your faith. And accordingly, James covers a, a wide array of topics in his letter. He's bouncing all over the place. But there are some hidden threads that go throughout. And the first of those is trials. Namely, your right response to trials. Just last week, we began with what may be the best known passage on responding to trials in Scripture. Again, you can read James 1 verses 2 through 4 from last week. He starts and says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and that endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These are important words and challenging words. It's a critical message. We all need to hear who is without some trouble in life. And so we all need to learn to respond in this manner. We covered that all last week. 
But given how such a big deal this is and such an important topic of rightly responding to trials, we would expect James to, to keep going, to keep talking about trials. But it seems like he just immediately changes topics. And so look at now verses 5 through 8, the next passage. He says right after this, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You read this at first glance, and you might think, okay, I guess we're done with all that business about trials, and we're on to the next topic. This is now clearly about acquiring wisdom, which is good. Seems kind of random, though. And the same thing goes with with the next passage. Just just for the fun of it, read verse 9. The very next passage, now he says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And see, again, reading on the surface, you might be thinking, okay, I guess we're now jumping to another new topic. Now we've gone from trials to wisdom. Now we're we're poverty and riches. I mean, it's all good stuff. It's all important topics. It just seems a bit all over the place, right? In reality, though, these passage are, passages are all connected, and James is still talking about trials all the way throughout. There is a thread running through all these various passages, and when the time comes, we're going to tug on that thread so that you can see how these all actually fit together with a train of thought he's teaching us, in general, how to rightly respond to trials, most of chapter 1. So I just want you, I say that just so you're aware. You keep it in mind. You're looking out for it. And when the time comes, we'll, we'll make mention of it. But James is not as random as some people think. For now, though, with that being said, we're ready to dive into our passage for this morning, which again is verses 5 through 8. And look, this is clearly a passage about gaining wisdom. And in many respects, it, it does stand on its own. But there is an important connection to trials. And so really, James is is showing us how to gain godly wisdom, especially in trials. That's what we aim to learn this morning. How to gain godly wisdom, especially in trials. Important lesson, as we'll see. There's a bit of a process to this. So first, you must acknowledge the need of wisdom. Number one. Acknowledge the need of wisdom. Look back at verse 5. He begins and he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom. And he opens verse 5. and He's just being gracious here. He poses this as a condition, even though it clearly applies to everybody. You know, if any of you, you know, might happen to lack some wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, who's going to respond to that and say, Oh, no, I'm good. I don't lack any wisdom. I think I have it all. I've learned it all. I'm fine. Thank you. And such a pride-filled person would merely be proving that they do indeed lack wisdom and, and they need this too. 
But this, this applies to all of us, what he's going to say. James is just being gracious. His subject matter, though, is clearly wisdom, that the need for wisdom. But we need to start by talking a little bit about what this wisdom is, what it isn't, and why we need it so much. Now, first, this wisdom is not merely knowledge. It's not just information or data. Don't make the mistake of confusing wisdom with learning or education. Some of the world's smartest people are still complete fools. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you could find someone with many degrees at the end of their name, but they could still be a fool in life. Sadly, it makes me think of President Bill Clinton. Whatever your political persuasion, you have to admit, Clinton was an incredibly intelligent and educated president. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He graduated from Yale Law School. He was a smart president. But at the same time, we would also say he was quite the fool, as most of them are, evidenced by the whole Lewinsky scandal. I mean, for all that learning, he just, he got himself into a lot of trouble. See, the world champions intelligence and education as the top virtues, but not wisdom. Which is why there's a lot of highly educated people out there who are still just fools. And they get themselves into all sorts of trouble because they lack wisdom. They're fools. It's not enough to possess knowledge. You have to live it out and apply it to life. And so along these lines, we can talk about what this wisdom is. This wisdom is understanding for living. Some call it the practical use of knowledge. Knowledge unapplied is almost worthless. But the wise person puts into practice all that he or she knows. And think of wisdom as skillful living. But more important than, th- uh, than that, biblical wisdom is always tied to morality. It, it's, it's, it involves a knowledge of right and wrong, and then doing right, not wrong. This is why in Scripture, the person who's living in sin can never be considered wise. They're, they're perpetually a fool. No matter how educated they are, they're a fool. And we actually have to take it a step further because wisdom is not just tied to morality, but it's tied to God's morality. Wisdom involves a, a fundamental knowledge of God's ways. The wise person seeks God's will in all matters, and then just carries it out, lives it out. And this also explains why just in general, in Scripture, the unbeliever, that the non-believer can never be considered wise. The world may applaud Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, but if your starting point is a denial of God and his ways, you will forever be a fool. And hence Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no submission to God in their hearts, no fear, no reverence, no respect. Therefore, they don't value God's ways. They're going to go their own way. But like Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Just by definition, man's ways apart from God by definition, our folly. But true wisdom begins where? 
with God. And chiefly, the fear of God. Remember Proverbs 9, 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He must acknowledge that God is the supreme creator and therefore his ways are best. He made the place. We should probably live as he tells us. It's like you're an astronaut. You show up at, at NASA. You're a pilot. They're going to launch a new shuttle to Mars. You don't know anything yet. But still, you show up and say, you know, I think I'll take it from here. I'll, I'll pilot this thing my own way. I'll, I'll figure it out. I don't need you. It's like, no, no, I think, you know, they built it. They know how it works. You should probably just do what they tell you to do. And likewise, God built us. He created us for his glory, to serve him, to enjoy him by walking in his ways. And the wise person recognizes this and, and embraces this. And then it just walks in God's ways. It's like Jesus said, the wise man is the one who hears his words and then acts on them. He is the one who built his house on the rock. We get that imagery. The fool is the one who hears the words, the same words, but does not act on them. And he is the one who built his house on the sand. And as you know, great will be his fall. The Apostle Paul, I think, really puts this together, this biblical understanding of wisdom. Just listen to Colossians 1, 9 through 10. Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, what's essential here is this knowledge of God and his will. That you, you accept this, you understand this. We need to be filled with the knowledge of God and his will. That's wisdom. To what end? He says in verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit for every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being finite and fallen creatures, we lack wisdom. We need to be filled with the knowledge of God and his will, his ways. And then in accepting it by the Spirit's power, well, then we need, we're going to walk it out and live it out and bear fruit. And this is what pleases God. Wisdom, biblical wisdom, it's not just man's philosophy. It's God's righteous ways lived out. That is biblical wisdom. And now let me connect the dots as to why this wisdom is so valuable, why we need it so much. Knowledge might help you win at Jeopardy, but wisdom helps you win at life, so to speak. Wisdom is all about navigating life skillfully in a manner pleasing to the Lord, as Paul said. This is especially helpful in all those gray areas of life. Those areas where scripture doesn't give you a specific answer or direction or, or where, a place to go. You know, a typical question I had to answer and help answer all the time back as a college pastor. It shows you the value of wisdom. Young adults asking me, should I marry this person? Should I marry this person? Not should I get married, but should I marry this person? What kind of decision should I make? Your intellect might tell you, hey, this person is rich. Your emotions might tell you, hey, this person is attractive. 
Most people stop there and just get married and then marry the person. But wisdom might say, you know, hey, this person, though, they don't love the Lord. They don't follow Christ. They don't have proven character. They're not walking in his ways. This is not God's will at the time. See, these are the types of decisions. These are the bigger decisions in life, and they will drastically affect the rest of your life. And book smarts typically can't help you with such decisions. You need wisdom. You need God's wisdom if you want to make these decisions in a way that pleases him, right? To be pleasing to him in all respects. You need God's wisdom for this. Now, to take it even further, not only is God's wisdom necessary to navigate all those gray areas in life, it's also necessary to navigate all those painful areas in life. And here I'm talking about trials. Suffering has a way of clouding our thinking, right? It can make us question everything we believe. And so what better time for gaining God's wisdom? Nothing exposes our need for wisdom like trials. Hey, my spouse just walked out on me. What should I do? Or this person at work hates me and wants to get me fired. What should I do? Or my doctor just called and said he urgently needs to talk to me. What should I do? Life is full of trials and and tribulations. And so you desperately need godly wisdom to endure while still honoring God at the same time, to, to even endure and be pleasing to him in all respects. And with this in mind, you can now see that connection between wisdom and trials in the context here in James chapter 1. You know, back in verse 2, how did James tell us to respond to all of our trials? He said to consider them all joy. We learned last week that one of the main purposes in our trials is, is the testing of our faith to strengthen and prove our faith, that we might endure, that we might be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's a good thing. God is not so concerned with our health and our wealth as he is our holiness and our Christ-likeness. So God will readily wield some fiery trials in your life if it's going to forge you more into the image of Christ. And we're called to simply embrace this, trust this, and endure. To endure. But you know, that can be a big pill for some people to swallow. This is, I might call it, a top shelf truth in the Bible. And James understands that these tests of our faith, they can be challenging sometimes. You look at Job or Asaph from Psalm 73, even godly men and women at times, they can be made to question everything they know when they're in the valley of suffering. I mean, you you know better. You know that God is good. You know he has a good purpose in your trials. But you you just can't help but wonder down there, why, why is this happening to me? These thoughts and doubts and questions flood your mind. And it can be real hard to consider it all joy. Does that resonate with you? 
And if so, it sounds like you need wisdom. You need wisdom. Remember, biblical wisdom is all about knowing God, understanding his ways, why, why he's doing things, and then submitting to his will, living it out. And that's precisely what we must do in trials too. Again, like we learned last week, James is writing to transform how we view our trials so that our trials, or rather so that our lives may be transformed by our trials. It all starts though, we have to just fundamentally change the way we think about our trials. As suppose, Instead of saying, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me, to, I may not be happy about this, but I see God has a purpose in it. And because of that purpose, although it's not fun, I can count it joy because I'm on board with his purpose, his will be done, not, not just mine. So James writes to transform how we view these trials, to see them from God's perspective, to get you to lift your eyes from your circumstances, your emotions, even, even your pain, onto Christ, onto the Lord, onto his plan and providence and will and sovereignty and purpose. You've got to come to share God's values and see everything from an eternal perspective. Right? That's all that we learned last week. But that can be hard to do still. I mean, that, that still can just be hard to do. It's challenging. How are you supposed to do that when a loved one just died? Well, again, it, it sounds like you need wisdom from above. That's how you do it. That's the only way you will do it is if you gain some wisdom, some understanding from above. Wisdom is all about seeing things God's way. And especially when you're going through a trial, you just need to learn to ask for help to do that, to, to just see it his way, to see it from his perspective. That's what James is getting at here. In reality, we all need God's wisdom. It's for living life, for navigating gray areas, and for enduring trials. We, we need this wisdom. It's time you come to terms with that. You have to get this first step right, which is to acknowledge your need of wisdom. You need this. You need help understanding life in God's way. And only when you humble yourself and acknowledge this, will you then move on to the next step. You got to first come to realize your well of understanding is empty. You've run dry. But then once you realize that, you will go to the source that you may be filled up again. And so the second step for gaining wisdom, go to the source of wisdom. Acknowledge the need of wisdom. Secondly, go to the source of wisdom. You're in the midst of life's trials. It's like you're staring at that kite string. It's in, a, it's in a hopeless mess. You've tried to get yourself out. You've only made things worse. Finally, you've come to the end of your rope and realized, I, I can't do this or get out of this on my own. I need God's help. So what should you do? Well, how about you ask? How about you just ask? Back to verse 5. He says, but if any lacks wisdom, that's all of us, let him ask of God 
who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. When you understand that biblical wisdom, it's, it's rooted and grounded in God and his ways. Then the next step, it's, it's pretty obvious. Just go to God. Literally, James says, let him be asking of God. Make this your habitual practice, your go-to. Lord, I need, I need wisdom. I need help. And lest you doubt God's willingness to answer, James strongly reassures us here. God loves to give, he says. Our God is a giving God. Giving is in his nature. And he's glorified when we go to him in dependence. God is so giving that he gives good gifts to people who don't even believe in him. His common grace abounds to all. But we know that to us especially, to to believers, God is... Extra giving, you might say, above all, he's given us his son, Christ, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead on our behalf that we might be redeemed and forgiven and made righteous. And so after receiving this gift of salvation by faith, do you really think God's going to now withhold everything we need to live out our salvation? As Paul says in Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things, all that we need? God will supply to his children everything they need for life and godliness. And James assures us this includes God's wisdom. Don't think of God as your personal butler. Just want to throw that out there. You know, we live to serve him. But at the same time, you can picture God in a sense as like a waiter. And he's just ready to serve us. His water pitcher hovers over your glass. It's just poised, ready to fill you up. But in this case, he says, you must ask. You must ask for him to give. And in this place, James echoes the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount as he will many times throughout James. But listen now to Matthew 7, 7 through 11. You you will remember these words where Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? To those who ask him. Jesus teaches, as does James, that that our God is a giving Heavenly Father and a good Heavenly Father. So much more than than earthly fathers. And and so if we know how to give good gifts to our children, well, how much more so does God? He knows what we need. He's delighted to provide as we are for our children. Now, I have to remind you, though, we're not promised to be delivered from all of our ills in this life. We know that. that. That promise is for the next life, for glory. 
And again, as we learned last week, God has many good purposes in our trials. We want to just escape our trials, but God knows that, that many times that's not what's best for us. It's actually best sometimes to leave us in our trials that our faith might be tested and proven and strengthened that we would become more like Christ, who himself had to suffer and endure much more than us. And so prayer here is not your get-out-of-jail-free card, your ticket to get out of all trouble in life, but it is your, the means by which you access and receive all that you need to live life and to respond to trials in the way God calls you to. This includes, for example, God's peace. That's something you need in trials, right? So how about you remember what we learned back in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, where he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, speaking of trials, talk about a time when you are overwhelmingly tempted with anxiety. But no, just, just pray. Let your requests be made known to God. And he promises, though, to give you peace. This supernatural peace to endure. God will give you peace through prayer. And in addition, James tells us he will also give you wisdom through prayer, which you also need to endure. This is what our Heavenly Father knows we need. And when it comes to this wisdom, at least be encouraged that God gives freely. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. God gives wisdom generously. This word literally means simple. That God gives to us with a single mind. He's not divided in his intentions. He's not double-minded like we are. He has a pure and single motive in giving to us. And that's just to meet our needs. That's it. He's just, he's there, ready, poised to meet our needs. What we must ask. In addition, it says God gives without reproach. God does not reproach us for asking for his help. Some people give like this. They give with reproach. Like, okay, I'll help you move, but I wish you would have told me like a week ago so I could have planned ahead. Or, no, I'll lend you some money. But what did you do with the money I lent you last time? Did you blow it already? That's called giving with reproach. And thankfully, God doesn't do this. He, he rightfully could, but he doesn't because he's gracious. When God gives us what we need, namely this wisdom. He doesn't rebuke us for wanting more. He doesn't scold us for squandering the wisdom we've already been given. He didn't say to us, okay, but, but this is the last time. No, he's just, he's ready get, to give all the wisdom we need without reproach. He is delighted to give his wisdom to those who ask. This is a, a chief and really important promise in scripture. Now, I feel the need, though, to quickly address the means by which God answers this prayer. James gives us an inspired promise that if we ask for wisdom, we will get it. But how does that wisdom come? 
We know that there's no, we're not going to get a voice from heaven. You're not going to see a burning bush in your path telling you what to do. Instead, we, we know that God grants us his wisdom through his word in which he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, that the treasure trove of his wisdom is right here. And tied to the wisdom of God's word are wise counselors who are measured by their reliance on scripture in their counsel. This is functionally how God gives us his wisdom and answers this prayer. But that might make you think in response, okay, so if you're saying we we actually gain wisdom by by reading the scriptures, studying scripture, maybe getting godly counsel, then why do I really need to pray for this? Like, why, why bother praying for this? I'm not going to hear a voice from heaven. So why not just read the Bible a bunch, get some wise counsel? Why, why do we have to pray for this wisdom? Well, if this is you, you're failing to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in both illuminating God's word to your mind and applying it to your heart. This is a wisdom you can read, but you can't gain on your own. You can't truly gain it on your own, even though it is found in God's word. Apart from him, both willing and working through the spirit, you'll never, you'll never gain it and you'll never live it out. God's power. It's like the furnace in a locomotive. And although we are commanded to move forward, apart from him, we we can't. We can't do anything. Again, there are many Christians. They're well-versed in scripture, but they're still fools. They still live like the fool. Why? Because they, they don't have power. They don't live it out. And almost without fail, they're not praying. They're not truly and actively depending on God's grace and strength through the spirit to, to do all that they know. They're like an appliance whose cord runs right up to the outlet, but it's not plugged in. Also known as powerless. And so I'll tell you, apart from the spirit's work, illuminating God's word to your mind and applying it to your heart, you'll never see your trials from his perspective. You'll never be able to count it all joy and, and you won't endure. And this is why, therefore, we must pray. You must go to the source of wisdom and ask in prayer. This is what you must do to gain godly wisdom. Pray that God will open up his divine storehouses for us. And we can pray this in confidence, knowing he will. He readily will. Now, we're not quite done. For there's one last step here. There's technically one condition that must be met. And so we come to finally, number three, meet the condition of wisdom. Acknowledge the need of wisdom. Go to the source of wisdom. Lastly, you must meet the condition of wisdom. In verse six, James says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. The promise of wisdom comes with one simple condition, and that is faith. You have to ask in faith without any doubting. It's a simple condition, but it does need some explaining. James knows that faith is the essence of our spiritual lives, 
and it's the chief marker of our discipleship. Biblical faith involves not just believing a body of truth or signing a doctrinal statement, but actively trusting God with all your heart. Faith is where you really embrace God's promises, his word, his will. You're no longer fighting against them, but you you accept them. You submit to them. This is what God wants to see when we pray to him for wisdom. It it pleases him when we depend on him. Like Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So God requires that you come to him asking for wisdom while truly believing in him and and actively depending on him to provide. You have to ask for wisdom sincerely. God knows if you're sincere in your prayers or not. You know, a lot of people make requests of others and ask questions insincerely. They have an ulterior motive. They're trying to get something else. But God sees through all of your smoke screens and he knows if you're asking with a pure heart. Sincerely. He will give to us with a single mind, but he, he calls us to ask with a single mind in faith. This is what it means to ask in faith. And the, the person who asks in faith will readily accept what, whatever answer comes his or her way. This brings us, though, to what it means to doubt. He says, ask in faith without any doubt. Now, I don't believe James is talking about the person who questions or wonders or wrestles with the faith. The Lord Jesus, for example, was very gracious with those who believed, but struggled to believe more. Like the desperate father in Mark nine twenty four, who asked Jesus to heal his son and said to him, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. That's a request made in true faith. That's not what James is talking about here. That father genuinely trusted Jesus to deliver his child, but he was just humbly acknowledging the weakness of his faith, of his flesh rather, and the imperfection of his faith. And you know what? God is gracious with such people. James is not requiring us to have perfect faith in order to pray, just true faith. Just sincere faith. Remember, Jesus himself taught that you only need faith the size of a mustard seed to be saved. God knows no one has perfect faith. We count on Jesus to one day be the perfecter of our faith, right? If perfect faith was required to pray, well, no one would be getting any answers from God because no one has it. Abraham, Moses, David, all men of great faith, but not perfect Faith. Did not Abraham also laugh when God promised him a son in his old age? Instead, it's best to understand James here. He's talking about sincere faith, which means the doubter is the insincere person. The doubter is the one who doesn't trust God, and he's not sincere in asking God for help and wisdom. This is the person who prays, you know, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Because it's the right thing to say, but they don't want that. They, they do not want God's will. They really just want their will done. And that's all they're hoping to get out of praying. That's what they really want. You think of Paul, who prayed that God would remove 
the thorn in his flesh. You remember that? And in that prayer, Paul had already resolved in his heart to submit to whatever answer the Lord gave to him. And so when God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness, Paul said, okay. And he continued to trust God. He didn't fall away from the faith. He continued to trust God and endure this trial, which obviously now was, was God's will. The doubter, though, is the one who prays, Lord, please remove this thorn in my flesh. And that's the only answer they will accept without getting bitter and angry at God. Here's another example. Think back to that person who asked the question, hey, should I marry this person? Remember? Their intellect says yes. Their emotions say yes. But wisdom says no. You know, their, their potential spouse is not a fellow believer. They have ungodly ca- character. It's not God's will. So you can picture this person praying, Lord, would you please grant me wisdom for this decision? But in reality, his mind is already made up. And as God's wisdom is revealed, that, you know, it's not God's will for you to marry this person. He's going to do it anyway. He's just going to do it anyway, do his own thing anyway. That's the doubter that James is talking about. And as a side note, a sure way to spot such a doubter is to find the one who shops around for Christian counselors until he finds one who will tell him what he wants to hear. Right? Forget the biblical counselor who will give him God's word. It's really looking for someone who will just affirm his desires. That is the doubter that James speaks about. The doubter's heart does not fully belong to the Lord, but he hedges his bets. He prays, but he reserves the right to, to go his own way if he doesn't like the answer. He doesn't like the wisdom. This is just the prayer of the hypocrite. The doubter prays for help, but when it comes in a form he doesn't want, he rejects it. Again, this person may pray, Lord, my will be done, or rather your will be done, not mine, but he never means it. And that's the difference between the prayer in faith and the prayer in doubt. And so James says of the doubter in verse 6, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's writing, he was well acquainted with the Sea of Galilee and the fierce gale storm winds of the Sea of Galilee. Wind from the north would funnel through the valleys, hit the Sea of Galilee, and just start churning the waters violently. Any vessel caught in it would then be at the mercy of the wind, driven and tossed without any help, out of control. And that's the picture of the doubter. That man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord. Such a person cannot pray with confidence, or at least they should not. They might delude themselves. But again, without faith, it's impossible to please God. I think we've learned by now, such a person, the only thing they really should be expecting from the Lord is a trial, right? Maybe that person needs a trial in their life to to humble them, to show them the hypocrisy and the self-will that still lives within, which is antithetical to discipleship. But God doesn't want us to be like this person. James says, double-minded. This word in the Greek is used by James here and, and again in chapter 4. And this word is found 
nowhere else in all previous Greek literature, not just the Bible, but all of Greek. So many people believe James just invented this word. It literally means the, the two-souled man, person who has a double soul. The picture of the doubter is a walking contradiction. It's like there are two people living with, within him, one serving God, the other self. One follows Christ, the other follows the world. He's got a foot in the world, a foot in the church. But this makes him, as James says, unstable. He's unstable. James will have a lot more to say about such double-minded people. But for now, it suffices to say that these are the ones who typically make shipwreck of their faith. And they're lost at sea in their trials. Not truly clinging to the rock of Christ when hard times come. These are the people who typically fall away. But you see now, James, he's calling us and warning us to be different. To have true faith in Christ. Be single-minded in your devotion and your discipleship. Self-denial is required of this. You should know you can't serve two masters. But just follow Christ completely. And know that bondage to Christ is a place of freedom. The one who learns this will truly be wise. He will navigate life with godly skill, pleasing God in all respects. And such a person will suffer well too. Again, thinking of trials in the context. Everyone's going to suffer in life. All people will be tried. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. Some Christians fall away from the faith because of their trials. But you know what? That doesn't make their trials go away. It only means they no longer have any hope. There's a better way, though, a higher way, a way to suffer to the glory of God, to endure your trials, and to do so with a perfect peace and hope and even joy. How can you do that? Only with godly wisdom. Only with godly wisdom. Only with God's wisdom can you truly embrace God's ways and then endure all your trials. By faith, through prayer, you need to just surrender your life to God's will. Where you can genuinely pray, Lord, my whole life, not my will, be done but yours. And and you mean it. And as you do so, you will be safe in the hands of God. Some of you might fear losing control over your life like this, but wake up. You've never had control over your life. (laughs) Resting in God's hands, though, is a good place to be. Sometimes it might feel rough as his hands are breaking you and molding you and reshaping you into the image of Christ. But that's a good thing, too. His hands are saving hands and preserving hands. And once you're in, no one can snatch you out of his hands. But you must trust these hands and count on them by faith. This is the person who unlocks the secret to true, lasting joy in this life. A joy which is not robbed by trials. This joy can be yours, but it is the companion of wisdom. They always go together. You will not find one without the other. And so this is why you must acknowledge your need of wisdom, go to the source of wisdom, and then meet the condition of wisdom, which is faith.
Then God will open the floodgates and he will richly bless your life with a deeper understanding of him and an acceptance of his ways, all to his glory and all to your joy. And so my prayer for you then is, is Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 17, where he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we praise your, your name, Lord. And we thank you for this word, the word of wisdom from Scripture, the treasure trove of all wisdom. All that we need for life and for godliness is there. Lord, you are wisdom to us, and Christ himself became wisdom to us. He's the personification of wisdom. This world has fallen, and because of that, it's full of trouble. Our sin has certainly contributed to most of that, but trials and tribulations will often come upon us. What, what are we to do? How are we to endure while still pleasing you? We, we don't know, Lord. We need help. We need wisdom from above. And this you have promised. You are so good and gracious, and you delight to give this gift without reservation, in full. But we must come and ask in faith, without doubting. And I pray, Lord, then you, you give us this morning the gift of faith and, and a stronger gift of faith. We all should be praying, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith. At the same time, Lord, we know you do that through trials. And so we, we need this cycle to just to continue. That we would believe as we go through trials, we would endure. Our faith would be, would be made stronger and we would gain more wisdom just to see things your way, to accept them and to endure, to hang on all to your glory, Lord. We, we need this wisdom from above. So bless us with it. Humble us and make us dependent on you that we might always truly pray in this life that not our will be done, but yours. And we do pray this, Lord, to your glory and, and to our joy that you would bless us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.